This is the Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to Starkville. Baseball Hall of Famer Jason Stark. And then the robot said, strike. That's why you're going in the Hall of Fame. It's an inside the park home run. Doug Glanville. Mike Trout is coffee at Starbucks with a double latte skinny. Doug, are you ready to make some podcast magic? I am ready. Bring on the magic wand. Let's do it. <laughs> Greetings and welcome to Starkville, presented by Tops. Check out Tops Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Tops baseball cards. Starkville is part of the Athletic Baseball Show, where you'll find great baseball talk all week long, including us every Tuesday. So I'm Jason Stark. I write about baseball for the Athletic. Joined once again by my good friend, writer broadcaster, professor, distinguished former major leaguer, Doug Glanville. And Doug, it's a joyous week here in Starkville because our favorite mayor, Mayor Tim McMaster, became a father since the last time we met here in the Starkville town square. Beautiful baby girl. Congratulations to the McMasters. We're so happy for those guys. And you and I are both dads, Doug. Uh, we both love everything about fatherhood. So any important pieces of fatherhood advice that you would like to pass along to our mayor? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, in my case with four, I, I call it zone defense. I think yes. if you understand how to be effective, <laughs> you just accept that. You can't cover it all. You just know that you pass it on and, and let it go sometimes. And sometimes someone else in the other zone, it, it could be your wife. It could be the person <laughs> shoveling your driveway or whatever it may be. I have no idea. So, um, yeah, zone defense is important. I'd like to appoint uh, Tim McMaster as an honorary king of Starkville in this moment. Uh, <laughs> it makes me rethink you know, the, the process by which we pass down the leadership of Starkville. Uh, now mm-hmm. that he has an heir... Uh, we can now go to kings and queens if necessary. And uh, I think he's earned that right. Okay, so the new McMaster baby is then the future queen of Starkville? That's right. This is, That's right. This is pretty heavy. We'll, we'll have to contemplate this on some future show. <laughs> <laughs> what this could entail, not just for us, but for the entire Royal McMaster family. <laughs> at, at any rate, Tim will not be occupying the mayor's office in Starkville for the next few weeks. Uh, the the formerly impeached mayor, Mayor Cam, will now be back. <laughs> and we're just going to have to get by, all of us, uh, dealing with an, an impeached former mayor. But I know we can do this, Doug. We and do uh, he'll be here this week. Uh, you know who else will be here this week? Chris Antonetti, the president of the Cleveland baseball team, <laughs> which we will soon be calling the Guardians. Yes. He'll join us. Uh, Chris, always so thoughtful and insightful, and there's a lot going on with his baseball team. So really looking forward to talking to him in just a few minutes. But first, Doug, let's do something a little different. Uh, Normally, as you know, if you listen to us, um, this is normally a pretty lighthearted show, but we can get serious too when it's the time and the place to be serious. And it, it, it feels like that time to me 
Uh, I don't know about you, Doug, but the uh, commemoration of 9-11 over this past weekend was very emotional for me. It stirred a lot of memories, made me think about the meaning of sports. So I, I thought we should take a few minutes at the top of this show to talk about that. Uh, Doug, you were a player. You were out on a road trip when 9-11 happened. What, what you went through, what your team went through that day, that week, that whole month is so powerful. I, I, I'd like you to reflect on that 20 years later. Yeah, Jay. I mean, I, I feel like there's so many aspects of it that isn't 20 years later. It's it's today. It's It's so present. I think there was an element for me that was deeply personal because I grew up as sort of a sub- suburban New Yorker in a sense. Although North Jersey, uh, I think about all my news coverage and sensibilities around sports teams. It was all Warner Wolf, you know, it was all New York. And uh, so I had that sort of understanding. And many times, you know, driving down the turnpike, going to New York, my dad's office and so on, uh, there was the Trade Center. I've been there a number of times. Uh, in fact, one year, I think in 2001, actually, for Christmas, I got a snow globe of the Macy's Day Parade around uh, with wow. the trade, the Twin Towers right in the middle of it. And and so it's it was close to me in that way. And I think as a ball player, all the uncertainty and the fear that came about that day. I remember walking into the elevator in Atlanta. We were playing the Braves, a big series, uh, close. We were like one game back. And I ran into Kevin Jordan's wife, Nina, in the elevator. And I was always a breakfast person, so I was up early. And the first thing she said is they hit the towers – um, and I said, again, because like, growing up in New York, I remember, I think it was a 94 or somewhere earlier, a, a truck drove in and tried to like blow up uh, by the, the lower level through the um, the docks. So I was sort of familiar with this before. And obviously, it was something way more, way more serious than, than I could have even imagined at the time. So I think I just still feel that, you know, I watched a lot of the coverage. I, I you know, tried to read more about it and understanding. And by the way, for listeners out there, uh, Jen Sr. wrote a piece for the Atlantic, I believe, uh, on 9-11 and, and sort of the families that went through direct loss. And it, it's it's really one of the best things I've ever read. I mean, it is that good. So I highly recommend it. I'll make sure I post it in, in late, uh, connection Great. with this. Yeah, please do. But um, but baseball being part of the healing, I just you – know, Atlanta, we weren't sure if we were going to play again. I was the union rep, so we were talking to players. <clears throat> we were getting messages from, you know, mixed messages at times. Do we play? Do we not? Eventually, we decided to head to Cincinnati, knowing the Brave series was over, and you know Cincinnati was not going to be played either. So halfway there in Tennessee, we were you thinking were of going bus, to Philadelphia because right? you weren't going to fly there. No, we were. Nobody that's right, flying. we were busing, yeah. and we were just not even sure we should leave Atlanta. Just just like everyone else, so much uncertainty, and and so we ended up getting to Cincinnati, and then we were able to fly back to Philly and just to see our families and just try to understand, which was long time coming still not really understanding so much of this and um and but i think we were part of the healing uh, at least for the moment of thinking of something else and using the the power of unity to try to bring us together around how to move forward at all uh not forgetting but just finding ways to to collect ourselves and remind us that we're not alone in this and we're going to need each other i think baseball served a powerful role in that and I was I was proud to be a part of that, and and you know just on a small level in baseball, everything changed. Travel. We used to just drive up on the bus right onto the tarmac, tarmac, and just walk on the plane, and that all ended. Everybody had to have ID cards, and 
you know, wives, girlfriends, uh, you know, whatever it was, we had to go through a security checkpoint. Uh, it just, you know, that was just a small change that changed our travel. So, um, but I think there was a lot of moments of, um, that we picked each other up that I'll, I'll never forget. Yeah, I, I can remember you describing to me riding on that bus towards Cincinnati and a lot of player debate about why are we even going there? What, yeah. Should we turn around? Should we go to Philadelphia? Like, you're on the bus. The bus is moving and you're debating what your destination is. Do I remember this right? Yeah, and, and I think part of it is we were all scared to do anything. Do we leave Atlanta? Are we safe? Where are we safest? We wanted to check on our family. And I remember at some point there was a vote taken and uh, because we were like, do we go to Cincinnati or try to go to Philly? So we all wanted to go to Philly, except for, I think, um, our manager, Boa, and Dennis Cook, who lived in Atlanta. So, you know, we it was a big series, certainly. So we were debating, do we are we just better off staying in Atlanta or going back? We decided to go to Philly, but then the bus driver had logged too many hours, so we couldn't make it, and they couldn't send a replacement. So we had to go to Cincinnati anyway. But that was the urgency of it. Nothing mattered but getting home, checking on family, and connecting to loved ones. And as you know, the, the phones and the area in New York were down, and it was, you know, really a nightmare. So, um, so yeah, it was. It was. We were just in the middle of Tennessee at a at a, a truck stop trying to figure this out. And um, nobody had any confidence. And, and just the idea of playing in an environment where there's 50,000 people, you know, we're like, is this the right thing to do? Um, we know healing can be important. We don't want to rush it. We don't want to be um, unsafe about it. So there was really no clarity. It was something you just kind of had to take a certain, um, you know, guesswork around what would be the right thing to do. Um, I think that game against the Braves was important, but we 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 didn't feel very sure of anything for the rest of the season for at, at the very least yeah great point um here's what i remember uh, that morning i was writing a column I, I believe it was on the mvp races if i remember right i never did write that column you know i was yeah. like everyone you know everything that once seemed important suddenly seemed totally unimportant and i started checking in with my friends in baseball to make sure they were okay, to hear their stories, to try to figure out what came next. Uh, uh, Doug, you were one of those friends. Uh, I remember reaching out to you that day. And the next week was a blur. Um, you know, we were just trying to figure out what did come next and why and what it meant. And, why, you know, why should we even play baseball? It was hard. And so, you know, a week later, when Bud Selig decided it was time for the baseball to resume, for the season to resume, and it was time for me to go to another baseball game, I had a feeling I haven't had very often. I, I just wasn't ready. I wasn't sure anybody was ready. Uh, I wasn't sure I wanted to be there. Uh, but by the time that night was over, I was so glad I was. Um you know, people don't remember this now, but before the Braves went to New York that weekend, they came to Philadelphia and play your team on reopening day. I think that's what we called it. Uh, that scene before the game, uh, the two teams lined up along the foul lines. Remember Bobby Cox openly weeping, Larry Boa weeping as that chorus sang, God bless America. Uh, I mean, I remember that as long as I live. And I remember that feeling of starting to understand what we were all doing there. And 
beyond that, I think I've made this observation before on this show, but let me just say this again. The people out there who think sports is just some hobby that people have, some thing they do, something they watch just for fun, for the fun of it, they have got this wrong. Because sports is such a powerful force in our lives, and I mean our real lives. It was nice like that that remind us why. Um, you know, think about it. I've thought about this a lot. There's just nowhere else in life you can go where 30,000 or 40,000 or 50,000 people or whatever it is all show up at the same place at the same time, and we all experience the same powerful, bonding emotions all at once. Um, you know, we have so many forces in our world now that pull us apart. Uh, sports is the opposite. It still brings us together. I know it definitely did that night. Uh, it did four nights later in New York. I, I mean, seriously, Doug, we needed sports then more than ever for that reason. And I think we still do. Do you agree? Well, I would go as far as to say we we always will. I, I just think it's that powerful. Um, and you think of the heroism around. Um, and I, you know, I grew up with volunteer police officers coaching me, and I started to see the connection between baseball and and law enforcement in a way that made me understand its history, whether it's a union history or the collectivity or being in every nook and cranny of every town and little leagues. Uh, I think that moment also was something that we could all lean into as athletes, but also as people, just to see that there's the, the heroism and really the true heroes uh, who took these risks and, and tried to protect people and continued to do that. Uh, and to this day, I think that was, you know, another way to connect to see that we are all in this together. So, you know, sports is a, as, as a mechanism, is a place to search for unity, for peace, for equity. And I think that is the best of us, and which is why I think it's, you know, always relevant and always important. Yeah, so well said. And, you know, as you stated a little earlier, it wasn't just that night. I think that emotion reverberated for a long time, uh, certainly right through the incredible World Series that year. Uh, you know, George Bush throwing out the first pitch in Yankee Stadium in New York City at that World Series. It's another memory that uh, still gives me goosebumps. Um, I love baseball for all sorts of reasons. But that feeling that we just described, that's definitely one of them. Guys tend to think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort, but it's possible to have it both ways. I'm all set for summer thanks to Mack Weldon. The Vesper polo shirt is so breathable you can wear it on the golf course, but it looks classy enough to wear to a party. The Maverick Tech Chino short is ultra-flexible, and the Pima Crew Neck T-shirt is perfect for those casual weekends. There's no need to be uncomfortable in your clothing ever again. Some guys just want to look good without calling attention to themselves. Mack Weldon Apparel gives you understated good looks for understated confidence. Mack Weldon clothes are designed to fit your style and the demands of modern life. They look like regular clothes but feel like the latest in modern comfort. They're the go-to choice for guys who want to look great without even trying. 
Breathable underwear that keeps you cool, dry, and comfy all day. Crazy comfortable but elevated sweatpants. An upgraded classic polo with antimicrobial silver threads. An ultra-soft antimicrobial tee for when you need to stay fresh longer. That's the Silver Crew Neck T-shirt. Get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code MLBSHOW. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. Promo code MLB Show. All right, Doug, it's time to welcome in our distinguished Starkville Visitor of the Week. We've got Chris Antonetti. He's president of that team that we still know for a few more weeks as the Cleveland Indians. Chris, welcome to Starkville. It's great to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you stopping by. And Chris, first off, uh, Doug and I were just talking about our memories of 9-11 20 years ago. Uh, we'd really be interested in in your own memories. Um, when you think back on that day and that week now, what, what's the most powerful memory that comes to mind? So I have so many memories of that day. I mean, I vividly remember where I was when the first building hit the or the first plane hit the tower and the news after that, and then watching live when the second plane did. Uh, I was actually at here at the ballpark working in a cubicle with a uh, TV behind me. And um, so many memories from that day, but maybe the most powerful one that I remember is our first game back in the ballpark and during the national anthem, hearing the entire ballpark sing the national anthem together impromptu wow. and the unity that we had at that time. Um, you know, that was a really emotional, a really emotional moment for me. And uh, a good reminder that there we do have a lot in common and there are opportunities for us to continue to think about ways in which we can come together as opposed to always what's pulling us apart. Yeah. And we, you know, we were just talking about the power of sports and the role that sports specifically can play in that. I'm sure that's something that you've thought about quite a bit. Absolutely. I think that's one of the uh, responsibilities that we have in sport is to find a way to bring people together, to unify people, to help heal uh, in some cases, and to help make progress. And um, it is a responsibility, and I know that I and we feel. Yeah, let, let's all shoot for that. But let me let me ask you now about um, the name of your franchise, which I, has not brought people together in Cleveland. I, I know. Um, and for the last 22 years, is that right? You've worked for the Cleveland Indians. And in a few weeks, you'll be working for the Cleveland Guardians. Uh, I know I, I saw the schedule announcement a couple weeks ago and it said 2022 Cleveland Guardians schedule. And my brain hasn't absorbed that yet. Um, I yeah. wonder if yours has, even though the name of this team and whether to change the name at all, uh, and then choosing this name is something that you've lived with every day for quite a while now. Yeah. So I would first go back to something you said earlier that it hasn't Brought, brought people together. And I'm hopeful the answer to that is yet. Hopefully in time, it can bring people together. And that's what we're ultimately hoping for. But um, yes, for me, I mean, my effectively half my life has been working for the Cleveland Indians. I'm 46 and I'll have 23 years working for the Cleveland Indians. So it's been a huge part of uh, who I am and things. And as I associate some of the great memories that I've had over the last 23 years, they've been around uh, the Cleveland Indians baseball team. And so I have a profound appreciation for people who uh, grew up 
in Cleveland and Northeast Ohio or anywhere rooting for the Cleveland Indians and all of the association and memories they have with that brand. What we're hoping is that we can um, bring those people along and welcome new new fans on board to a, a new name that does a better job of uniting and inspiring everybody in a more um, in a more unifying way, as opposed to what we learned was uh, divisive in some ways. Yeah, you know, these are such difficult, nuanced decisions because there's history involved and there's emotion involved. Um, you had to deal with all of that. So which was more difficult? Was it the decision on whether to change the name Indians or the decision on what the new name of the franchise would be? So it depends upon how you define difficult. Um, the process, I mean, the, the big decision and the, um, you know, the big decision we had to make is whether or not we were going to move away from Indians in the first place. And that was the one that probably elicited the most emotion because of all the reasons we talked about, all the memories people had. So what we did is we first kind of announced that we're going to take some time to, to really consider whether or not it was appropriate for us to continue with the name and engage stakeholders, um, you know, across the country and from get Native American perspectives, get uh, our fans' perspectives, get corporate perspectives, civic perspectives, engage our own teammates to just listen and hear what they had to say. And then ultimately, you know, we made the decision, and that was a really difficult and emotional decision, I know, for Paul. Paul Dolan was to make the first triggering decision to move away from the Indians. So that was hard on an emotional level. But execution-wise and how we had to figure out what the new name was going to be, that was extraordinary, extraordinarily complex and was a really difficult thing to execute because – I think we had up to, I think it was 1,198 names that were oh submitted. <laughs> and then we had to filter out and which ones made the most sense. And then of those, which ones could we get legal clearance to, um, you know, to pursue. So that process was a lot more complex than I initially expected. Yeah, we, we definitely want to ask you about those. And I'll, I'll let Doug jump in here in a minute. But how did you know that this was the right time? Um, that seems like would have been one of the toughest parts of this of all. What's the right time? Yeah, so that was a, it's a great question, Jason. I think if you reflect back to, you know, all the things that were going on in our society, you know, last year, um, and the th it caused a lot of reflection for individuals, for organizations, and that included us. And what we wanted to make sure we were doing is we view ourselves as a civic institution. Our purpose is to unite and inspire our community and our city through the power of team. And we were, we really tried to reflect, is our team name really doing that? Are we really bringing people together and unifying, unifying groups and inspiring them? And what we, what we decided and what we heard uh, after we engaged a number of groups, specifically Native Americans, is our team name was not doing that. In fact, it was causing them harm uh, and wasn't representing them in the way that they wanted to be represented. And um, so at that point, we felt we had a responsibility and an obligation to change. And then that's led us down the path of, okay, now that we made the decide, decision to change, what is our new name going to be? Well, Chris, you know, I'm, I'm curious what your uh, evolution of understanding has been in that process of getting a sense of the history, learning from these groups that you spoke to. Uh, how has it changed over time? It's something I talk about in my class at UConn about, we, we talk about mascots and names and that history from fighting Irish to the Braves to the, you know, Redskins and so on. So I'm curious yeah. how, you know, what sort of information uh, did you sort of find helpful to sort of reshape your understanding? 
So, Doug, I would say that the biggest change was, um, I would say there was an earnest dialogue to really learn and understand someone else's perspective. And I think at different times along the way, we were left to rationalize or figure out, okay, you know, is there something problematic with our, whether it was a logo or a name, um, but I'm not sure we fully engaged the people who would be most affected by that. And what we did in, in the be very beginning of this process wasn't we were going to change our name. The beginning of the process was we have a responsibility to engage everyone who's affected by it. And we had multiple conversations with a number of Native American groups, both at the national and local level. I was I had the uh, great fortune to participate in some of the discussions and hear firsthand from them what uh, their experience has been around um, sport franchises or other um, teams naming and having um, either logos or names or imagery around Native Americans and how that not only affected them, but the experiences that their children and generations were having. And once we heard that perspective and understand the impact it was having on them, that evolved our thinking and ultimately got us to a point to recognize that the right thing to do for us, if we want to be the institution that is um, making progress and is unifying people and is bringing people along that we had a responsibility to change. As difficult as that might be for many of us and as, as much emotion as we all have tied to the brand that was and that is the Cleveland Indians, we felt it was the right thing to do. Yeah, and has it, has it put you in a position to now going through this process to assist other uh, organizations, high schools, colleges, as have you been part of that uh, transition for, for those institutions? So in our dialogue with the Native American community, that was one of the things I think that they were hopeful of, and we certainly are willing to be a part of it. To the extent we can provide a leadership example through this of, um, of how to work through the process and ultimately just share transparently how we arrived at the decision we did, um, maybe there is an opportunity for other teams or other high schools or colleges to reach out to us and engage, hey, why did you do this? And what was the process? And we've had a lot of those conversations already, Doug. You've probably seen that there are a number of high schools specifically and other institutions that are heading down a similar path. You know, Chris, you talked about the idea of trying to get people to rally around the new name and to unite around the new name. What is there a process that you need to to go through to make that happen? Or is this just about people getting used to the name? I think it's a combination of things. I think someone had a great um, reminder for me. Like if I were to say we had no history of any sports, any sports team, we're all starting from scratch. If I told you we're going to name our team after a color of socks, you would say, no, why would you do that? There's nothing <laughs> inspiring about red socks or White socks are like, you wouldn't do that. But now it's become a brand because people have built so many memories around that, around that imagery. They've built emotions. There's a connection to that. And so we recognize for us to create that attachment to our brand, it will be a process. And part of our responsibility is to deliver some memories on the field as the Cleveland Guardians that people can relate to and forge those new memories. And we know it's going to take time. We know that there will be a number of, a large number of people that have been tied to the Indians, and that's where all their memories are. And I think what we're hoping is that over time, we can create some new memories for them. We're not asking anybody to forget the memories that they've had and all of the 
attachment they've had to our franchise in the years past. But we are hopeful that we can create new memories for them. And uh, over time, that that will uh, build that brand. And, you know, it's not just memories. It's also stuff. Like, I'm guessing there's some stuff in your office or there's some piece of attire you're going to have to trash now. Like, is there something that you're going to really feel strange without? Yeah, my, my my family has asked because I've now been working here for 23 years. So they've gotten a lot of gear that says Cleveland Indian. Right. Cleveland bit. Yeah. So they're like, what do I do with my whole closet, my wardrobe at this point? So, yeah, that will be uh, that will be a an evolution for us certainly i'll have to refresh all my clothes yeah there's not there's like there's not some favorite golf shirt of yours that you're going to never be able to wear again something like that coaster um, yeah I, some of that, some of the play some of the uh, memorabilia i have around and i don't collect much but things that were you know we wore during like a postseason celebration you know those are things that i'll um i'll continue to hold and treasure i just may not wear or display them quite as much. <laughs> right. You mentioned there's 1,198 names. Um, I'm sure it was impossible to sift through all of them and and make the right choice. I'll admit to this. I was a big fan of spiders. I, I know <laughs> the history of the Cleveland spiders name isn't that glorious. You know, <laughs> right. but, but my thinking was this was a chance to rewrite that history. So how much consideration was there of that? So I, a couple things. I, one, we had a um, a incredible team uh, that primarily was composed of members of our business operations team that led us through that process of trying and our legal team to navigate uh, and filter down those 1,198 names because we did want to get one that um, you know that our fans could rally behind, but we also had to get one that was legally viable. And maybe without going into the specific each each specific one, there were some that were more legally viable than others. And so some names that may have emerged that might have been individuals' favorites or fan favorites or favorites even among that group just simply weren't possible. But we're, we're actually really excited that we were able to get uh, to the Guardian's name. Even getting that one was uh, required some <laughs> complex negotiations on a lot of different places. It's a football but, team, right? The Guardians. Yeah, there's, there, there's a lot of – you, you'd be amazed, especially because <laughs> a Major League Baseball team operates in so many spaces – whether it's you know entertainment or sports or memorabilia or merchandise, there's a lot of different places where um, or places that we touch within the market. So we have to make sure that we got appropriate clearance in all of those areas. And thankfully, we we're able to do it with Guardians, and we're all really excited about being able to to lead with that. Uh, I'm glad you didn't go with like Cleveland Starbucks or something. That would have been a problem. <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, the one that I, I threw out one, Cleveland Porcupines, that would get a lot of legal – we got legal clearance on that one, but somehow I didn't get a champion a lot of votes for that. So. You could have just gone with like 1198s. You could just stop yeah, right exactly. there. The 1198s. Right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, hey, let, let's talk about your team, Chris. Uh, have you been no hit enough times this year to last your lifetime? Yes. So, yeah, that, that, uh, that, that's not one we'll, we'll look to repeat. Hopefully we're done with those for the foreseeable future. So Yeah, you used up your quota. That, but uh, what is three no-hitters and a fourth game where you got zero hits but wasn't a no-hitter? What, what does that tell you about the need to address your offense between now and 2022? Yeah, I, I think whether or not we were no-hit or not um, – I, that that is an area where we'll continue to focus. Um, we recognize coming into the year that we were going to be a really young team. 
Uh, we were going to have an exceptionally young group of, of pitchers, but also a young group of position players. And we knew with that there was going to be probably going to be some times along the way where we wouldn't perform maybe as we hoped. What we wanted to see was that group kind of take a step in their continued development and kind of set a foundation for us to be you know, successful move, moving forward. And we do feel like there have been got players that have made strides on that and have really helped solidify a foundation for us as we look forward. Although it has been frustrating living through in the moment when, you know, we, we have moments like we did the other night. Right. You know, at least when you look at your rotation, I'm sure uh, you've had so much turnover in that rotation, but still so many great arms when they're healthy, which I, I mean, I guess I should ask you about Shane Bieber. Uh, is Shane Bieber going to make it back at some point this month? We believe he will. Uh, he will go out on his first rehab assignment tomorrow uh, with Columbus, where he'll go somewhere between two and three innings and around 40 or 45 pitches. So if he doesn't have, um, you know, if he continues to respond to the additional volume well, there's a chance he could rejoin us in a major league game before the end of the year. And, um, the thing we've obviously prioritized is making sure we're thinking about Shane's long-term health um, and productivity and, and not making any short-term decisions. But um, he's made so much great progress and and put in so much work to get back healthy that you know, we wanted to see if, if it made sense to have him come back. And right now he's on a path to do that. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever. And that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. One more great product from LinkedIn. You're there to network. You're there to look for jobs. You're there to post jobs. And how about LinkedIn Sales Navigator? It's a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash baseball show. That is linkedin.com slash baseball show for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash baseball show and get started. Let me ask you about your manager too. Uh, Terry Francona is a guy that... Doug and I have both known for such a long time. Uh, I know how hard the decision was for both of you for Tito to step away and try to get himself healthy. Uh, I've been in touch with him, but why don't you tell us how he's doing and do you expect him to be healthy enough to manage your team in 2022? So he's doing well. He actually just recently sent me a picture a couple minutes ago of his surgically repaired toe, which I told him, Great. unfortunately, I can't unsee. I would have <laughs> not send me that, uh, but he's doing well. I'm actually going to, we'll be stopping by to visit him tomorrow at his apartment in Cleveland. So just to rewind a bit, uh, last month, he ended up having a hip replacement done. Uh, that, that went well. He recovered, you know, he started the rehab from that and recovery. And then the next procedure he needed to get done last week was to have his toe surgically repaired. And that toe was why he was wearing a boot for as long as he was. And so now that he has had his hip replaced, he's had the toe repaired. He's going to be in a cast somewhere between eight and 10 weeks, but he has now like met each one of those kind of check, check, checkpoints 
to begin a path to a full recovery. Whereas a couple of months ago, unfortunately, each day was almost like spiraling a little bit further down. His hip continued to bother him more and more. His toe was bothering him. That led to back issues and all sorts of other issues. So as difficult as it was, we it was clear that we couldn't continue to go down that path. I mean, Tito is one of the toughest individuals I've ever been around. He cares more about the team and the game than anyone I've been around. So it was incredibly difficult for him to get to that decision. But ultimately, we got there together because we need to make sure we got him healthy first and foremost. And also that would give him the best chance to have the best quality of life moving forward and also put him in the best position to manage the team in 2022. Yeah. And Chris, you know, I've had the fortune of playing with for Terry for many years in Philadelphia. Uh, what's he meant to Cleveland, the city, the franchise, the organization and, and your career, your tenure with the organization? Oh boy. Uh, where to start with that, Doug? He's meant so much to you know, to me as an individual, every day I've been around him, he's helped me uh, grow and get better as a as a leader, as a you know, as a baseball executive in so many ways. And he's had that impact on people throughout our organization, and um, he's also had that impact on our players, our coaches, um, and he's also that within our community. He's really invested uh, in the city of Cleveland and has become part of the fabric of the community here and it's given back both with time and resources to help make our community better. And that's just part of who Tito is. He is the epitome of a great teammate, no matter which team he's on. If that's part of a teammate of an organization or teammate within a community, he wants to be the best teammate and leader he can be. And um, he's been that for so many of us in the time he's been here. Chris, you know, Ken Rosenthal wrote recently about all the trades that your your team has made and how many pieces you've been able to put in place with all of those deals. Um, I wanted to look back a little bit about the, on the Francisco Lindor deal. Uh, it feels like it was so long ago. It was actually in 2021. And uh, I, you know, I wrote a piece, I guess it was last year about why you were obviously going to have to trade this guy. And, you know, it made sense to me at the time. I got so much pushback from your fans after that. So many people saying your owner has more than enough money to afford to keep guys like Francisco Lindor. Uh, he just chooses not to spend it. I heard that over and over and over again. How do you respond to your fans who think that? So I can appreciate our fans thinking that. Ultimately, uh, as a fan, you don't care about payrolls. You don't care about finances or bottom line, you care about teams winning and you care about your favorite players staying with your team. So I certainly respect and appreciate our fans wanting us to um, keep their favorite players for the entirety of their career. But the reality is in, in markets like ours, that's often not possible because I think I've shared this with you in the past, Jason, we could have kept Francisco Lindor, a Cleveland Indian for the rest of his career. We just wouldn't have had the resources available to build championship teams around him. And I look at my primary responsibility and our primary responsibility in baseball operations is to field teams that are capable of winning the World Series and not just retain individual players. And I mean, we can go down the slippery slope of the economics of baseball and how that works and the differences between small markets and large markets. But in the end, we made the decision that um, we wouldn't be able to afford Francisco Lindor and to be able to build a championship team around him. Do you mind going down the slippery slope for just a minute? What could baseball do to create a financial environment that would give teams like yours a better chance 
to keep a player like Francisco Lindor for the long haul. Yeah. Um, Jason, I would love to do that. In some ways, though, I'm just not, especially in the environment we're in right now, I know that there are a lot of people working diligently to figure out what that right system should look like. Um, so for me to interject my thoughts on, you know, what would ultimately be collective bargaining issues, I'm, I'm not sure is constructive. But at the most macro level, there's a, it's not surprising to anyone, there's a huge disparity in the income and revenue that teams generate. And that is largely a function of market size. And Cleveland, we are in one of the smallest markets within Major League Baseball. I think we are the smallest market to have three prof- the three major professional sports teams within the same market. And that has a real effect on what revenue opportunities we have. And just like any other business, if you have less revenue, you therefore have less ability to, to, to afford expenses. And so we have to, our expense um, our expenses have to look different than teams that have uh, revenues that are far greater than ours. Yeah. And I mean, and, and I think the, um, you know, you think about the marketplace and that challenge, there's been so many efforts, certainly when I was working with the Players Association as a player, whether it's competitive balance taxes and all these different things. And, and in the end, as a player myself coming into spring training, I just wanted to be in an environment where I had a shot to win, right? No yep. matter where I was, I signed with the Phillies, the Rangers, you know, whoever it was. And uh, so I always had a, a certain appreciation of, um, of those challenges. But one thing that has happened is it's been harder for teams, you know, to get this dynasty level. There's still a chipping away at the challenge of repeating. What do you attribute to why it's so hard? to sort of repeat that success, whatever it may be from that year before. Right. So I think some of it goes to just the, you know, the nature of the postseason, and, you know, we're ultimately playing. Now I'm confident over the course of 162 games, that more often than not, the best teams are going to emerge with the best records over that much time. But we all know, we've all seen it. Um, you know, it's been our own experience, right? If you think back our 2016 team that went to game seven of the world series, um, it wasn't our most talented team. You know, we had multiple injuries to our starting rotation. We only had a couple of guys healthy. We were trying to piece together a rotation. We had some key injuries to our position players. And we went to game seven of the World Series. The next year, we won 102 games and had a 22-game winning streak. It by far the best team we had on paper. And then was in the first. So I think like our own experience is probably a good example of just the you know, the uncertainty that we have in the postseason. And that's why I think our objective is we want to try to build as many competitive teams as we can to get to the postseason as frequently as possible, because in the end, that's going to give us the best chance of winning the World Series. Can I ask you about 2016? Because I think about it a lot. Uh, That World Series was so memorable. Uh, That Game 7 was such a classic. But when you're the team that loses a game like that, uh, I, I'm guessing it's hard to look back on it as one of the great game sevens ever played. Am I right? Yes and no. I mean, I do have an appreciation um, that it was one of the best game sevens ever played, but it, you're right. It is hard to, <laughs> you know, it is hard to relive that because um, you think about, you know, different balls bounce a certain way or if someone's a foot over and instead of a ball going down the line, it's a routine, you know, five to three out. So yeah, there are a lot of those things where it, you can't help but play what ifs, but um, I think at some point I'll be able to rewatch that game through a fan's perspective and just enjoy it for the incredible uh, contest and baseball game that it was. But I'm not sure I'm quite to that point yet. So five years later, you've never watched that game again? No, not from beginning to end. I've seen, obviously I've seen the Rajay Davis <laughs> play quite a bit and I've seen Chris Bryant make the throw over to first base oh, and get Michael Martinez out to end it. But uh, 
aside from those few highlights, I haven't haven't watched it from beginning to end. Uh, so what, I will at some tell, point. <laughs> you can do it, man. <laughs> what what would you tell Indians fans about how close you think your team is to the next great October moment? I would say again, our our goal and our hope is that we can continue to build competitive teams. And over the last eight years, we actually have the best record in the American League of any team since Tito's been manager since 2013. We have the best record. So despite some of the challenges that we've talked about, we found ways to build competitive teams. And through some of the trades that we've made, even over the last and decisions we've made over the last few years, we have tried to reposition our team for sustained success moving forward. And we feel we've done that. We've been able to get our payroll back into a more manageable place. We've infused the organization with a lot of young talent. And this year, we're hoping it's going to be a springboard into next year to have even a, a more competitive team. And our expectations going into next year in 2022 will be to contend for the Central Division. again. Chris, I, I want to ask you about your own story just a little bit. Uh, it's always amazing to us how many of uh, the, the GMs or presidents of baseball ops that we have on this show started in baseball as interns, often unpaid interns. You were one of those people. So let me ask you something. We ask everybody who, who has done that. What was the most interny thing you ever had to do? Um, I can, I can think of a lot. Um, I you know, made peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for the Gulf coast league team. When I was there, <laughs> I drove guys to and from the airport but I should say, hey, as recently as last year in the middle of pandemic, we were doing laundry in Minnesota when some of the clubhouse attendants got uh, got COVID. So oh, um, I'm not sure I qualify <laughs> anything as interny. I look at it as, as it's work that needs to get done. So someone has to do it. All right. I mean, Eric Neander told us a story about uh, br- breaking into the executive box. <laughs> I haven't heard climbed that out, one from Eric. Climbed, climbed out on a catwalk to break into the executive box to retrieve something that somebody that he worked with had left in the box. That is good intern work. That is good intern work. You're right. I'll give you that. That is good intern work. I haven't had to do that one. (laughs) Okay. Good to hear. Uh, I also know that your wedding reception was at the rock and roll hall of fame. So I'm wondering what's your very favorite spot in the rock and roll hall of fame. And does it have anything to do with that wedding reception? Great question. So one of the, one of the, uh, I'm not sure why this of all things stands out. My wife will probably shoot me for saying this, but one of the things that I remember most from our reception is the dessert stand we had. And it was like vats full of candy and sour patch kids and chocolate and all sorts <laughs> of stuff. And so I vividly remember where that was at the bottom of the escalator going down the first floor. And so I'm not sure why that spot in particular, um, <laughs> is at the top of my memory, but that's the first thing that comes to mind. Don't th- I hope fam- my wife doesn't listen to this podcast because I'll be in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> well, try not to let anybody know that you were yeah. actually here. Yeah. But wait, your favorite spot in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is an escalator? Really? Well, at the moment, that's when that, again, when I think back to the wedding, the thing I remember visually from that from that day is coming down that escalator and seeing this huge display of candy that like covered the wall. So... <laughs> Uh, that might not still be my favorite place today, but that's what registers in my memory right now. <laughs> yeah, the heck with those guitars. There's dessert. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All, right. All right. One last thing. I know you got to run. Uh, once upon a time, you interviewed a former player named Doug Glanville, right? Yeah. Uh, what did you learn about Doug Glanville 
in that interview that the world needs to know? One, that he could probably do anything in the world he said his mind do. He is one of the yeah. most thoughtful, uh, humble, impressive people I have come across. That like there isn't, you know, any subject that he he digs into or he gives thought to, he um, gains great insight. And I would just remember thinking that, hey, wherever Doug wants to go in his career, whether it's down the um, front office path, coaching path, managerial path, um, if he wanted to write books, whatever Doug chose, he would be successful at it. Yeah. So he could have done anything in life and he wound up here co-hosting a podcast with me. What went wrong, Chris? <laughs> he just chose, he followed his passion, Jason. He must really love what he does with you. So. Yeah, we, we do have a great time. And it takes me about 10 minutes to read all his titles, his job descriptions. He's got a lot going on, man. But yeah, he uh, definitely does. <laughs> anyway, Chris, always great to talk to you. Uh, thanks so much for visiting us here in Starkville. And let's do it again soon. My pleasure, Jason. Thank you for having me on. Okay, it's that time again. It is time for listener trivia, our way of involving you, our favorite listeners in this show. Once again this week, we are literally involving you by picking a trivia question from some theoretically lucky listener. Then we invite the theoretical lucky listener to join us on the podcast to stump us with their question We'll tell you how you can do that in a future show in just a few minutes. But first, we've got a really challenging trivia question on our plate this week. And I'm sure if you're listening right now, you're thinking, what else is new? <laughs> but we love this one because there are just so many potential ways for us to get this wrong, Doug, even more than usual, I think. <laughs> right. It's so layered and nuanced that we can just yeah. sort of drown in our own cluelessness. I, I, I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, we, we do that probably better than anything we do in this show. We drown <laughs> in our own cluelessness. <laughs> so on that note, let's bring in this week's special trivia guest star. It's Cole Garriak. Cole, welcome to Starkville. Hello. Thank you for having me, guys. Right. It is great to have you here. Uh, Cola, where are you from and uh, what team are you a fan of? I always like to know these things. Uh, sometimes it might actually give us a clue or two about the question yeah. so we can find one more way to get it wrong. Yeah, so I am from Southern California, but I'm not a Dodgers fan. I'm actually a Braves fan. So Really? So how'd that yeah, happen? I don't <laughs> think that helps you with your clues at all since you have <laughs> a lot of different things going on there. Uh, right. but I was always just a fan of Henry Aaron growing up and then – when I was a little kid, I it was kind of in the middle of the Braves winning all those division titles. So it kind of started as a Fairweather fan and then just blossomed into a football, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it happens. And the great part about the world we live in now is you can be a fan of just about anybody, no matter where the heck you are. <laughs> yes. So uh, the Braves sure. appreciate that. Um, <laughs> now, your, now, your question, is this one that you thought up all your own or did you see it somewhere? So I actually was at the Dodger game a few weeks ago and they showed kind of like a fun fact on the board. And then I thought it could be expanded on a little bit. So I added on to what the fun fact was. So that kind of gives a little hint, I guess, of who really? people could be. Yes. Mm -hmm. All right. So I'm sorry I wasn't there. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> 
that would have provided definite clues. But we're, yes. Doug, we're on our own. Yeah. Um, so, all right. Uh, it, it, it's time for you, Cole, to do what so many have done before. You're going to fire another big trivia fastball right by us. Okay. What? So what's your question? Okay. So four players have played in the World Series, won an MVP, gold glove, and silver slugger all in the same year. Can you name them? Uh, can we name them? Played in the World Series World in a Series. season where they won the MVP, gold glove, oh. <laughs> and silver slugger. Silver uh, slugger. Doug, this is a tough one, man, because try, trying to remember who won a silver slugger in what year is something I'm pretty sure even the silver sluggers <laughs> themselves could not do. But uh, there is kind of a hint in including the silver sluggers because – um, yeah. the silver slugger didn't begin until 1980. So at least that gives us a time frame, a frame of yeah. reference. I like it. Uh, yeah. Okay. So speaking of 1980, that leads me to one answer that I'm sure of. The Phillies won the World Series that year. So Mike Schmidt has to be one of the four. <laughs> I know he was the MVP that year. Uh, he won the gold glove and silver slugger like every year. <laughs> so, right. so like that's gotta be one. But now what? Okay. Um, I think a couple of these came in just the last few years. Uh, wasn't like you, Cole, you, you mentioned the Dodgers. W um, wasn't Mookie the MVP in 2018 when the Red Sox won? I think he was, right? And he I, he has to have won the Gold Glove and Silver Slugger. So I yeah. like I would definitely guess him. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then uh, what about Jose Altuve? You know, he, I'm pretty sure Ooh. he was the MVP in 2017 when the Astros won. Uh, mm. The question is whether he also won the Gold Glove and Silver Slugger. But I know yeah. he's done that. Yeah. So I feel like he's also on the list. Okay. But then who else? Okay. Like I thought about Cody Bellinger, but he was yeah. the MVP two years ago. It was not a World Series year for the Dodgers, right? Yeah, they didn't make it. Yep. Yeah. Ken Griffey never got to the World Series, right? Uh, nope. Bobby bon uh, Barry Bonds got yes. there, never won. But you don't have to win, right? You just have to oh, get there. Oh, that's right. You don't have to. So Bonds, so Bonds he might played be played in the World Series. Played, yeah. He definitely played, played in the World, the World Series. Series. Oh, okay. Yeah. So hmm. All right, so I we'll have to think about him. Uh, Miggy, I don't believe has won a Gold Glove. Uh, Albert Pujols, he has won all of these. Let's think about his World Series years. Uh, kind of forgot about 2004, him. 2004, <laughs> 2006, Pujols. 2011 when he was in St. Louis. I, I don't, I don't know if he was. I mean, I don't, I don't think he did all four of those in those years. Plus, we need to think back a little bit. Um, w Willie McGee. I thought about him. You know, he was definitely an MVP one of those years. The Cardinals were going all those World Series in the 80s. Yikes. Um, Barry Larkin I thought about, but Ozzie Smith won almost all the gold gloves in his era. Um, Eddie Murray with the Orioles. Ripken yep, with the Orioles. Um, another one that really just came to me, Buster Posey, man. Buster Ooh. Posey's won all those. Um, 
Whoa. So I'm like, I'm really not sure, but I think I'd kind of lean toward Buster Posey. D Doug, help me here. What do you got? Yeah. Well, I kind of had some of the same names. One, what about Robin Yount? Did he, did he win the gold? What, what year was that? The uh, Brewers. What position? I, I don't know. 80, 87, right. 82, 82, 82. They went, that's after the silver slugger. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, those National League outfields. Oh, wait, he was in the American League then. Those American League outfields, they were loaded then. Would he have won a silver slugger? I don't know if he ever won yeah, a silver slugger. Maybe not. Maybe not that. That's, That's a good guess. Um, what about like Dustin Pedroia? When did he did he win? Uh I wouldn't put anything past that guy. He was the <sighs> MVP in 2013. Is that right? Uh, not sure yeah. what year. Yeah, but would he have won a silver slugger? The slugger is tough. Oof. He might, he, or he could have won it. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, how do you win MVP? <laughs> and then there's, uh, I thought about Jimmy Rollins or Matt Williams. Jimmy Rollins, were, the year he won MVP, they what? did not go to the World Series. That was 07. Matt okay. Williams, well, that's good. I don't think ever won an MVP. Yeah, maybe um, a home run title. Uh, yeah, I, I think... Yeah. I, I'm still thinking Schmidt, Mookie, Altuve, Tuve, Posey, but I'm willing to I'm, I'm willing to take something some other guess if you got well, one. Well uh, well Barry Bonds, <laughs> he doesn't I mean it seemed like he won I mean he seemed yeah. like he won every year. Gold gloves, silver slugger, MVP. He, but a lot of those MVP. gold gloves he won, that was early in the Yeah, career. maybe the you know, um, yeah, that's true. That's right? true. Oof. All right, Buster Posey. I mean, it's a good guess. I like it. I mean, you have bets <laughs> on Tuve, Schmidt, and Posey. I, a Rod didn't win in 08 or anything. Uh, he went. They went in 09. Yeah, he was like in third base. That's right. 09. That's Phillies. Yeah, yeah he that's right. He was he, in third. He, there's not a lot of gold, gold. glove trophies yeah. in his trophy case. Yeah, so, I, uh, I like. I like the guesses. I like them. Bets on <laughs> Tuve, Schmidt, Posey. <laughs> Um, there's a lot of good ones on the table, but yeah, I know we like so many ways we can get this wrong. All right. But I think we've beaten this into the ground long enough. So let's, let, let's bring in Cole. Cole, is there any chance that it's Mike Schmidt, Mookie Betts, Jose Altuve and Buster Posey? Maybe, maybe it would be more fun to go one at a time. Mike Schmidt. Yes. yes. That one is correct. Yeah. Okay. Mookie. I knew you were going to get that one. Okay. Mookie. Yes, correct. Okay, we're rolling. Two. Jose Altuve. That is incorrect. Oh, no. Really? He did not get the gold glove. Brian Dozier won the gold glove that year. Ooh. He had a lot of nerve. Yeah. <laughs> Who is he? Because no, uh, he's definitely got some gold gloves. All right, so Buster Posey, is that right, too? That is also incorrect. Okay, so let's see. Okay. Did we at least mention the two guys we didn't get? You did mention the other two. Um, the first was Robin Yount in 1982 because he was a shortstop then. So oh, Robin Yount. All right. Didn't trust myself, though. And the yeah. other one, this was the real stumper, was Willie McGee in 1985. Oh, wow. wow Willie. So we, like, we, dro like we dropped the stumpers. <laughs> hey, we, why do we do this every week? We talk <laughs> ourselves so out of the best answers. We are so what, yeah. pathetic. What's We're really pathetic. interesting, too, is 
actually, if you take the silver slugger out of it, it's the same four people. So they're also the same. <laughs> We are the only people who have won an MVP gold glove and been in the World Series in the same. Really? Is yeah. that, wow. is, was that the change that you made? Or well, you so I guess post-1980. I didn't look before 1980, but post-1980, those are the only four. Well, I mean, wow. I would have thought Willie Mays would have done it, right? Yeah, he and, probably and, did it. Yeah, but anyway, I, I honestly thought that we had a shot of this. And like we're so good at finding ways to get these wrong, we're just <laughs> pathetic. Like this makes us five and eighteen in trivia this season. And and Doug, one of the ones we got right was a question about you. So we are <laughs> yeah. such losers. Like, why do we though. still do this? Why are we doing this segment? Uh, I told you, you got to bring back my scheme, man. We got to. We need like double the guesses or something because yeah. this, this is a beatdown. It's a uh, beatdown. You know, like I, I thought it was the right thing to do to get rid of the Glanville devious cheating, <laughs> cheating scheme. I'm rethinking. I am. <laughs> but if you listen regularly, you know that whether we get the question right or wrong, we still bring in our mayor, in this case, our acting formerly impeached mayor, Cameron Molina, to rescue this segment with some cool play-by-play -play moment involving one of these answers. There's so many to choose from this week. So, Mayor Cam, I cannot wait to see what you got ready for us today. Man, at some point, I'm about to shut off this impeachment title. I don't know where <laughs> it came from, but slandering my name really hurts. But I suppose in the spirit of cold, taking a trip to Dodger Stadium, now a part of the Dodgers, formerly of the Boston Red Sox, Mookie Betts hit this homer in Game 5 of the 2018 World Series. Two and two to Mookie. Here it is. And he swings and hits one deep. Left field. Back goes Taylor by the wall. Goodbye. Home run. Mookie Betts, his first ever in the postseason. And the Red Sox lead it 3-1. to one. And they love Mookie so much. And they love him even more when he does that. <laughs> and they learned to love him in L.A. too, by the way. <laughs> so they did. Just not that day. Uh, that was so much fun uh, hearing that shot by Mookie. Uh, and Doug, uh, we like we have changed mayors at least temporarily, but the play by clay, play by play clip remains the highlight of the trivia segment, and the trivia itself remains the low light of the tri trivia segment. I, I don't know why we're doing this, but uh, Mr. Mayor, Mr. Acting Mayor, thank you, uh, Cole. Thanks for joining us here in Starkville. Fantastic question. Thank thanks you. for running it by us. Yeah, yeah great question. I appreciate it. Strange but true. Finally, as we do every week, we've reached the portion of this show where we recap our favorite strange but true moments of the week. As always, so many ridiculous choices this week. Uh, Doug, I lobbied for this one just because it's so bizarre and yet so classically. 2021-ish. Okay. <laughs> exactly. I, I can't wait to even listen to this again. Uh, this was a week or so ago in San Diego. Kyle Tucker of the Astros is at the plate. He hits a fly ball to right field. I want you to listen to what happens. <laughs> fly ball, right field. This is the third baseman. Manny Machado backpedaling in right field. Yeah, that's right. Padres third baseman covers a lot of ground. <laughs> Seriously. 
He hit a ball into the right field corner, and it came down 277 feet from home plate, and it was caught by the third baseman. <laughs> so, so, Doug, how are we scoring that? P5? Uh, I mean, yeah, I guess it's <laughs> F5, P5. Is it, is it a kind of a hybrid pop-out, I guess? PF5? Um, yeah, I mean, F5, I mean... Yeah, I mean it's it's just baffling, and now, and he did this before, didn't he? he did this? Uh, yeah, this is like, like that's the, the second thing. time he's done it. Yeah, no, like normally you would ask, "What's that guy doing there?" Except we have seen it before. Uh, it was last year. We did the same thing. We played a clip <laughs> of him doing this exact same thing to Joey Gallo. I've talked to Joey about it since. He still has nightmares about that play. <laughs> like he got mad at me for even asking him about it. Uh, uh, Manny wasn't quite as far away from his normal hangout on this ball as he was in the Joey Gallo ball, but still, he's almost 300 feet from the position he's supposed to be playing when he catches this ball. So I, I would ask you two things. One is, should we be allowing this? Two is, why do we even keep scoring anymore? <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, the, the very big debate is about shifting and, and limiting it. But right now, it's like, hey, if you're on the field, you can kind of be anywhere. I mean, can you put a catcher in right field and just have nobody behind home? I don't know. Maybe that's coming. <laughs> uh, so, but, you know, mm. the, the scorekeeping, it's so different. I mean, I grew up scoring a lot, especially learning through Stratomatic and scoring games. And now you almost have to write a story in, whether it's the ghost runner, zombie runner at second, or the shift and where everybody's playing. I think it's become more important to establish where people are on the field as the pitch is delivered so you understand why the third baseman is robbing a home run over the right field wall, right? We got to figure this out. So now it's almost like location and is just as important for saying, okay, a guy got a base hit to right, uh, you know, because it sets the tone. It explains why a guy goes from first to second and then just keeps going to third because nobody was covering or something. <laughs> So I, I think it's it could enrich the storytelling part of scoring, but I, we almost need a whole new set of codes just to kind of to, to decode what exactly is happening <laughs> right now. Yeah, we're going to have to ban the shift just so we can keep score. <laughs> Tell Theo. All right. Uh, all right, before we go, Doug, I know you want to talk about something that happened Sunday night in the Mets-Yankees game with Francisco Lindor and Giancarlo Stanton. Um, Francisco Lindor hit three homers in this game. Uh, he'd hit two at this point in the game. He'd been doing some, like some whistling and trying try to deliver some messages to the Yankees <laughs> during his home run trots. So then Giancarlo Stanton hit a home run and here's what happened next. And look at Stanton taking his sweet time. Oh, he got some chippiness. He's talking to Lindor. Oh, now it's on. Everybody's out on the field. Stanton answering back to Lindor. Umpires and coaches are doing their best to defuse the situation. Here come the bullpens. Oh, boy. Oh, boy is right. Matt Veskirgin on the call for ESPN. Yes, Giancarlo actually interrupted his home run trot to do some <laughs> trash talking. Really? Like, what is happening? Doug, Doug your thoughts. 
Well, I go back to Brian McCann. Remember when Carlos Gomez hit the home run and McCann didn't let Carlos Gomez oh, yeah. step on home plate? Oh, yeah. Because, I mean, that was classic. Uh, you know, look, I, I think it's it's a, it's a probably the natural progression of, okay, we are sort of opening up more to allow celebration, right? Flipping bats and celebrating and recognizing it's a young game. And this is, uh, there's a lot of, uh, you know, cultural influence from all over the world. And I played in Puerto Rico. I loved it. They had dance teams and all kinds of stuff. So I, I think it's, um, it's part of it. So I think that's important to fuse into the culture from so many different points of view. But I do think from a league standpoint, you're going to have to make a distinction on what is, you know, celebrating and honoring the moment versus trying to embarrass your opponent or turning it into this trash talking affair. And I think that's where you're trying to, you're blurring the lines from sort of celebratory to like a sportsmanship issue and whatever the backstory is, right? I mean, you can't have home run trots where you're stopping at shortstop and trash talking to shortstop and, and then leading to, by the way, almost a brawl over like a conversation, right? So, I mean, that's where you're starting to you know, get away from the moment and say, okay, yeah, celebrate. You hit a big, you know, Lindor hits a big home run in the eighth inning. I mean, all that's cool. But now you're turning it into antagonizing your opponent directly. And that was often the distinction before. I know the lines have moved a little bit to say, all right, flipping a bat isn't necessarily antagonizing, it could be celebrating. So we can we can work on those boundaries, but it's pretty clear when someone's yelling at you and talking to you directly and back walking backwards on your trot and stopping at shortstop, that we're kind of going off the rails. And and you know, whatever the, the, the reasons are or based on whistling and, and even Lindor, like all the implications on where they, you know, tipping signs, I'm not really saying that. Uh, <laughs> I don't think that's really where you want to go because it's distracting from the greatness of the moment, right? Of hitting the home run and celebrating it. Now it's turning into like, I'm using this to rub your face in the dirt. <laughs> and so I, I do think the the league should look at it or or players should revisit this and say, all right, we don't want to get into like bad sportsmanship. Okay, that's not, now we're really getting away from what we're trying to celebrate here. All right, a couple of things. Uh, one is, this is not even the first time this has happened this month. Uh, if you read my weird and wild column, the most recent one, I, I posted a clip <laughs> of a version of this in AAA in Reno, in which the guy who hit the home run didn't even make it around the bases. He never touched third. He never touched the plate. They still let him have the homer. He was going around second. Uh, he and the, uh, the the infielders started trash talking. Next thing you know, there's haymakers being thrown. There's people all over the field. He never even gets to third. Okay, so like maybe Giancarlo saw that and got some ideas. I don't know. But I, I would like everybody to heed the advice of Doug Glanville and when you think about doing this, you should just say, what is happening? <laughs> no, don't do that. And here's another thing. When Giancarlo Stanton is involved, especially don't do that. He's <laughs> right, one of the largest sure. humans I have ever been around. So you don't want to mess with large humans. That's a little word of Starkville advice for the world. Got it? All right. That's going to do it for this week's show. You can find us every Tuesday right here as part of the Athletic Baseball Show. Monday, Ken Rosenthal's Mailbag. Thursdays, Hunter Pence, Grant Brisby, some kind of barista thing going on. Fridays, Keith Law and Derek Van Riper. 
Great stuff all week long on The Athletic Baseball Show, which is available in its entirety absolutely free at Apple, Spotify, everywhere you get your podcasts. And of course, you can still find us ad-free at The Athletic and at The Athletic app. So if you like what you hear, we would love it if you'd subscribe and give us one of those five-star reviews. Thanks to the many people who have already done that. And if you'd like to read our work or any of the incredible writing on our site, there is no better sports writing being done anywhere than in The Athletic. So if you've thought about subscribing, just go to theathletic.com slash baseball show. And guess what? You can subscribe for 50% off. So check us out. You'll be happy that you did. Also remember, you too can be part of this podcast. Every week, for some reason, we continue to invite the listener who submits the most fun trivia question of the week to join us right here in the podcast and prove once again, there is almost no baseball trivia question we can't get wrong. To do that, you can either email us at Starkville at theathletic.com or you can fire those questions at us on Twitter. To find Doug Glanville, you just have to spell his name. That's D-O-U-G-G-L-A-N-V-I-L-L-E at Doug Glanville. And me, I'm at Jason St. Jason with a Y, St. Just remember to hashtag those questions, hashtag Starkville QS. And one more thing, don't answer the questions that people submit. Then we can't use them on the podcast. That's been a problem. I know I can count on you not to tweet those answers anymore, right? So, Doug, thanks for playing. Thanks to Chris Santinetti for visiting us. Thanks to Cole Garyak for the great trivia question. Thanks to the acting mayor of Starkville, Cameron Molina, for producing us and putting up with us. And thanks to you all for listening. Coming up Thursday on the Athletic Baseball Show, it's Hunter Pence and Grant Brisby. And Doug and I will see you next Tuesday on Starkville. <laughs>